Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, welcome to the Monday Scramble. Things are a little bit different this week and next week. Kaya and Wolf is away. You won't be hearing any of those comedy intros. I'm really sorry you'll have to go through a two-week drought, but we'll we'll do the best we can in her absence, uh, and we'll still have fun, and we'll still also talk about pretty serious stuff. We're going to do both today. Towards the end of the show, well, towards the middle of the show, we're going to look at the world of baseball. We're sort of at the, uh, a little magic moment in the baseball season. It's the trade deadline, but uh, very specifically, we're going to talk about the focus on pitchers. Uh, and why, in fact, you know, they say in spring training the pitchers are ahead of the hitters. Well, now, like, the pitchers are ahead of the hitters all the time, basically. It's very difficult for the hitters to hit the pitchers. I mean, to hit the balls that are thrown by the pitchers, to make contact with the piece of wood uh, against the horsehide ball. And for those of us who like to see that, who like to see a ball go out into the outfield, rattle around in the corners, people run around the bases, it gets kind of boring for the pitchers to be that good. So we'll talk about that. And then, uh, uh, as if that weren't uh, frivolous enough, we're going to tell you. Actually, this is serious. We're going to tell you about a CDC warning. There are a lot of people who are part now of the backyard chicken movement. Uh, and the problem with the backyard chicken movement is people mistake these backyard chickens for pets. And then they have contact with them, uh, not, not, not understanding that chickens are often vehicles for salmonella. So uh, we'll tell you why you should not kiss or otherwise nuzzle or cuddle with your chickens. Anyway, we're going to start much more serious than that. We are going to talk uh, about one facet of the very tr- troubling case of Sandra Bland, and for that matter, uh, Kendra Chip- Chapman. And we could be talking about a whole bunch of other cases because, in fact, all over this country, there are people who are sitting in jail cells waiting for trials. They are being punished before their trial, which is sort of the cart before the horse, right? You want to have the trial, and then, if warranted, punishment. Uh, but because of our system of bail, um, a, a lot of people are not in that situation. So uh, joining us to talk about this is Leon Nafok. He is a staff writer for Slate. Uh, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So um, uh, we can use uh, the Sandra Bland case as a case in point anyway. We know that she was pulled over for an illegal change of lanes. We know that her encounter with the officer who pulled her over escalated into what we might call maybe a personality clash. The officer called it a little bit more than that. And suddenly she's in jail for three days. Now explain why it was that she was in jail for three days. So she was uh, arraigned on Saturday, which was the day after she was arrested and brought into the jail. Um, and during that arraignment, a justice of the peace for the county, uh, for Walworth County, Texas, uh, set her bond, uh, set her bail, rather, sorry, uh, for $5,000. Um, and that meant that she, uh, through a bondsman, could have secured a bond for that amount of money, which would have cost her or her family um, $500, or 10% of the total. Um, and they just did not get that together before Monday morning, which is when she was found dead. Yeah, we know that she was trying that they were trying to do that for her, trying to get her out of there. That's but right. For, so the the argue, this is part of a larger national argument. There are um, groups, there are organizations here uh, that have been for some time agitating for the the idea of changing the system, maybe just getting rid of this system. But before we talk about getting rid of it, let's talk about the argument in favor of it. Why is there a system of bail here in this country? So I mean, the basic principle uh, at work here is that. 
if you require people who have been accused of crimes to put down some money um, before and, and then let, before you let them out of jail and let them walk, you know, in advance of their uh, court date when when their case will be heard, that mean that that will that will improve the likelihood that they will actually show up to that court date. So if there's money on the line uh, in the form of bond, in the form of bail. Um, we can we can count on those people coming back um, because they don't want to forfeit the entire sum, um, which is what would happen if they didn't if they if they skip town. Um, so that's sort of the, it's supposed to be kind of an insurance policy. You, know, you, you require someone like Sandra Bland to post five thousand dollar bond, figuring that okay, well if she's gonna you know if she's gonna flee uh, instead of showing up to court, um, she, she will think twice about that because she won't want to uh, forfeit that five thousand dollars. All right. Uh, by the way, as we go along here, I am going to argue uh, for the abolition of this system or the substantial modification of it. But you may have your own thoughts out there, and you are welcome to call in at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Leon Nafok, th- this seems to be a system that has has kind of inverted its own purpose, right? The The original notion here is that we really don't want to be holding people without trial for long periods of time, and there are constitutional problems with that. So this system was set up, I think, with the expectation that most people would make bail and then have this in- incentive to show up. Not right. that people wouldn't make bail and therefore be held in large numbers for large amounts of time, but I'll let you pick it up. No, that's right. Um, I think the, the, the idea, you know, the word bail actually refers to the process or the act of getting out. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the system should be geared towards uh, essentially imposing the, the, the least amount of uh, hardship on the person um, who has not yet been convicted of any crime, um, while also uh, guaranteeing that, you know, justice can be served, which would require them to, to appear in court uh, at their court date. And you found that there are there are organizations that have been lobbying for some time for changes in the system, correct? Yeah, there's there's a big bail reform movement brewing, and I think it's 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 gathering momentum um, pretty uh, pretty meaningfully. Um, the, the the one organization I've been sort of focused on is uh, made up of a couple of lawyers in D.C. They go go by the name uh, Equal Justice Under Law. Um, they're civil rights lawyers, and they've been um, mounting cases against. Uh, Small cities, primarily in the South, uh, where uh, they have made the argument that, that that keeping someone in jail just because they can't afford um, their ticket out is unconstitutional because it violates the Equal Protection Clause. Um, and they've been successful so far. They've 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 convinced or pressured, um, I believe, five uh, cities um, to get rid of uh, secured money bail, which is the system that you know would, would, that requires someone to put the money up before they uh, are let out. Uh, and these two lawyers, they're, they're, they have big, big ambitions. They hope to keep, keep suing cities that, that use the system. And, uh, you know, so far they've really stuck to small small places, small cities that people haven't really heard of. But, you know, at some point they might set their sights on a big, on a bigger city and get, get more attention. And, you know, already one of the cases they've, they've pressed has, has attracted the interest of uh, the Department of Justice. Um, and uh, it was a a city in Alabama that they sued. Part of Justice issued a, a statement of, of support, essentially saying that uh, we also think that uh, this system of bail is unconstitutional. 
Now, the reason that it's unconstitutional, well, there are probably some Sixth Amendment problems with it. We, we can come to those in a second. But the, the almost more pressing one is the 14th Amendment. Uh, in other words, it seems as though, like, I, I could have made Sandra Bland's bail. If I had been arrested with the yep. exact same charges, there's just no question that I could get $500 so I could walk out. So you have one class of people who are incarcerated without trial before trial, almost indefinitely, depending on how quickly the trial can be arranged. And you have another class of people, people like me, who can just walk away from that? That's so, right. so I assume that's the Fourteenth Amendment argument. Precisely, yeah, and it, it's a it's a very strong argument. And the, the, the one of the little lawyers who uh, who I've been talking to from that organization, you know, he puts it very starkly. He says nobody should be held in a cage because they're poor. Um, when someone who is not poor could walk right out. And, and, it, and it's not mysterious. I mean, often when we have the, these, those kinds of um, due process arguments or equality under the law arguments that are somehow or other based on, on, on money, they're, they're kind of secondary. But this one's just really clear. You know? Super clear. There, yeah. there, there's, there's, a, there's an amount of money that's set up, and either you can get it or you can't. If you can't get it, you're screwed. Uh, right. I mean, there's nothing very mysterious about this. Hey, I want to grab a quick phone call. We've got a Paul calling in from East Hartford. Our number, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet at. Tweet at us at WNPR Colin. That's our Twitter account, WNPR Colin. Hi, Paul. You're on the air. Hi. I want to say that the bail system is an absolute disgrace. Um, I know of a situation where a person had committed a drug offense. The uh, Manchester Probate uh, Superior Court set the bail at something like $30,000. The bondsman uh, charged $2,500 for the bond. If you forked out $2,500, what's left to actually get a lawyer? So in many ways, you're being denied the right to actually get a trial by, by, by justice system. It is disgraceful. Um, you know, if it's something that involves violence, danger to other people, that's one thing. But especially drug crimes, when the person is only hurting themselves, the bail ought to be their own recognizance or maybe something token, unless they've specifically skipped uh, bail at other times. I really think this needs to be looked at, and I think the governor is working in the right direction in this area. Right. We do have some initiatives going forward here in Connecticut. Leon Nafok, uh, this isn't all totally speculative. We have a wonderful laboratory for looking at this. It's called Washington, D.C., right? They, in the 90s, um, essentially got rid of their bail system. Yeah, and it's worked out really really well so far. Um, you know, the, the fear that uh, is expressed usually by bail bondsmen who don't want bail to go away and who are very powerful in terms of lobbying lawmakers uh, the argument they make is that if you don't have bail, then people won't show up to their court dates. Um, and it's just been shown that in Washington D.C., that's just not true. Um, you know, the, the the system has worked fine. They have a they have a, about 15% of defendants are, are who are held on uh, what's called preventive detention um, because they're they're deemed uh, too dangerous for to be released into the public. Um, everybody else, you know, the remaining 85% uh, get to walk free uh, without paying any money and and and. So far, you know, it's been a long time now. People show up. It's no, there's no problem where they where where we're seeing like droves of of defendants uh, skipping town. Um, and and to whatever extent we measure this, and uh, as they start to measure it in some of these other places where uh, these initiatives to change or scrap the bail system have been successful, you also have to measure it. Also, you have to subtract all the people who jump bail under a standard bail system too. I mean, no no system is perfect. Sometimes people put up the twenty five hundred dollars, and then they're they're just not in court either. So it's it's not as though bail always compels appearance. You're gonna have to look That's at right. that too. So to me, it's to me. It, it seems as though you can't unthread this entirely from 
the Sixth Amendment issue, too. And, and, and we've certainly seen this really vividly in New York City where, um, I mean, the guy who wound up being sort of the poster person for it was Khalif Browder, the guy who, right. uh, who killed himself. But he who killed himself, he's held in Rikers for three years without a trial. He was accused of stealing a backpack. Uh, the charges eventually were effectively dropped against him. I mean, this is like an insane amount of time to be in prison. Yeah, and, for $3,000 bail. Yeah, $3,000 bail in an incredibly dangerous environment, too. This is not, I mean, this is not a safe place to be by any stretch of the imagination. He was exposed to incredible amounts of violence. So, um, he right, and the argument that the, that that that, that, um, that reformers make is that, you know, we 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 can't. We, how, how can you possibly justify putting someone who has not been convicted of any crime in a, in, a, in a in a situation like this? I mean, there's been plenty of studies that show this the, the the horrible effects of being in jail even for one day. I mean, we you know this is partly why the Sandra Bland case I think is actually a really important one to look at uh, as this reform movement goes on. Is that you know she was there for for not that long. I mean, but still, like if someone who's never been in incarcerated before, like someone who uh, is freaked out by the whole situation, like not only, you know, in some cases you're going to see people lose jobs over over a one-day jail, you know, jail visit because they didn't show up, because they couldn't show up to work that day. You're going to see people, you know, uh, have problems with their families, you know. It's just, it's hugely disruptive, and we're, 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 we're sort of forcing people to uh, go through that you know, just because they don't have money to, to get out. It's, it's, it's very strange. Um, I went back and looked at the declarations made by Mayor de Blasio and the state's top judge, Jonathan Lippman, kind of in the wake of the Browder case and some other stuff. So they announced this new initiative to, to see if they could drive down this number of people who are being held in jail without trial for long periods of time. And so they said that in the first part of the plan, I think I'm quoting from the New Yorker article about this. Everyone who has been held in the city's jails for more than a year without being convicted of a crime, and that's about 1,500 men and women, will have their cases fast-tracked with the goal of resolving half of these cases within six months. I mean, that's... That's sort of the noble high-speed initiative that, first yeah, of all, the a year and a half, right? Yeah, I mean, a year and a half if you're lucky. You're, if you're in the half, that's lucky. It's half the cases uh, within you'd be out in a year and a half. I mean, it seems such an incredible violation of the notion of uh, innocent until proven guilty and not holding people. In, yeah, I just. And, and judges are supposed to, by the way, uh, consider a defendant's ability to pay when they're making a bail, uh, a bail uh, when they're setting bail. Like they're supposed to uh, look at your financial situation. The problem is that uh, in a lot of places you see the use of, of what's, what are called schedules, basically mm-hmm. like uh, predetermined uh, price tags that come with you know different crimes, different levels of crimes. So in those, in, in many of those places, you know, the person's indigency, the fact that they can't pay anything, is not taken into account at all, which makes that, which is, which makes those particular uh, approaches to bail illegal. Right. So I mean, in other words, if you bust up a Starbucks or something, then it's a hundred thousand dollars bail, no matter who you are, no matter what your means are. Some people are going to be able to go to the bondsman, get the ten grand, and get out. Uh, but it's just one size fits all for that crime. We've got a right. quick- Which that was the system in, in the Sandra Bland case, by the way. She would, and remarkably, it, it, it had been uh, six weeks earlier. They'd been, they'd been, they'd, they'd been not been using the system, and then, as I learned during my reporting, that it was only six weeks ago that, or six weeks from her death, that. Uh, Waller County moved to a fixed bail system. All right, let's grab a call from Joseph in Meriden. Sounds like he's had his own experience. Hi, Joseph, you're on the air. How are you? Just, I just wanted to tell you my experience very broadly. I was uh, arrested in central Connecticut for something very minor, and um, not only did I have to come up with the bail money, 
which I actually had. I was told that I had to have an outside source come in and meet the bail bondsman. In this instance, it was an elderly, my elderly father. He had trouble. The bail bondsman didn't show up, and I was in jail for 48 hours. When I finally got in front of a judge, I was let go with a promise to appear. But those 48 hours were incredibly traumatic, and it was sort of a very minor incident. And uh, once you get in the system, it's very difficult to get yourself out. That's just a comment I wanted to make. All right. Um, so, um, Leon, just to sort of reiterate, reiterate something you said earlier, it does seem as though there's a movement building here. Like a year or two ago, if we were having the same conversation, it would be a fairly abstract one. But it does seem as though a few dominoes are starting to topple a little bit, correct? Yeah, it seems like it seems like people are talking about it a lot more. You're seeing articles about it. You're seeing um, you know, legislators um, bringing it up. You're seeing j- judges talk about it. I think there's definitely uh, uh, um, a, a lot of energy behind it. All right. Well, let's hope that we don't need too mo- many more of these tragedies uh, to right. become their, the cases in point. Leon Nafok from uh, Slate Magazine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. We're going to take a, a little break here. When we come back, we are going to seriously geek out about baseball and especially why pitchers are ahead of the hitters like kind of all the time. And I think we're back. All right. So um, and I, we're making a, a, an implausible transition here. That was a really important segment, though. And I just, you know, over the weekend I was getting in some discussions. Discussions were want of a better word online with people about Thomas Jefferson. And at one point this guy said to me, this is the this is the greatest country in the world. You should just enjoy it. And I. I really wanted to say, well, it would be the greatest country in the world if we did any of the things that we actually say that we do. <laughs> but, for example, this bail conversation is just an example of that. We we don't really do the thing that we say that we do. Anyway, uh, towards the end of the show today, we are going to have a conversation about the hazards. And they are real hazards, significant health hazards of what are known as PDAs. That's poultry displays of affection. People look at the backyard chickens and they just think it's like a cat or something and they put their noses on it and they put their mouth on it and then they get salmonella. But we're also going to talk about the yawning psychic gap that must exist in in generations of Americans that they would need affection from a chicken. You know, there's something else going on here and it's something that worries me deeply about the health of our society. Anyway, that'll be coming up towards the end of the show. It's a pre-taped interview Phone's a little squawky, very appropriately for a chicken segment. Uh, it sounds like chickens are something bad is happening to them in the background, but you'll still you'll learn a lot and you'll grow. Uh, right now, we're going to talk about baseball. Ben Lindbergh is a staff writer at Grantland. He is uh, uh, doing a lot of very interesting journalism right now about baseball and specifically about pitchers. It seems to be all about the pitchers these days. Even historically, it's about the pitchers. Three out of the four Hall of Fame inductees this weekend uh, are pitchers. Most of the trade talk that's going on right now in the thick of the trading season for baseball seems to involve pitchers as a prized commodity. Uh, and as Ben will tell you, there are lots of reasons why a pitcher might be a an extremely valuable commodity these days. Ben Lindbergh, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'd really rather be talking about chickens, but I guess we could talk about baseball. Not everybody can talk about chickens. Uh, oh, every, I'm not qualified. Everybody wants to, but it's a society of specialization. You could talk about the San Diego chicken. That would be about it, though. Um, <laughs> so um, one thing that we know sort of over the last few years, and you've written about this, is that what, what 
ignoramuses like me would very loosely and sloppily characterize as offense uh, is has been on the decline. Maybe not so much here in 2015, but if you look at things like scoring, uh, it's uh, it's on the on the downturn. And if you look at things like strikeouts, they're going up. Right? That there's reason to suppose that the pitchers are semi permanently ahead of the hitters. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think so. It, really, that's been the trend throughout baseball history is that if left alone, pitchers kind of gradually get the upper hand. Strikeout rate has been rising slowly but steadily throughout baseball history. And eventually, you know, evidently, eventually it gets rolled back from time to time. You know, the strike zone changes or the mound height changes or baseball does something to swing the balance back toward the batters again. But there hasn't been one of those somethings for a while now. And so for several years, scoring has declined and strikeouts have increased. And those things are are obviously correlated. And there are a number of factors for it. You know, the probably the, the greatest factor that we've been able to establish is the change in the strike zone. And there hasn't actually been a change to the rulebook definition of the strike zone but it's been called differently than it had been before because now there is this tracking technology that Major League Baseball can tell exactly where the pitches are going and exactly which pitches correspond to the rulebook definition of the strike zone, and the umpires are now graded based on how closely they come to this rulebook definition as judged by technology that can tell where the ball was within an inch or so. And so they're instructed to call the strike zone the way it's defined, but it turns out that the better they come, the closer they come to that definition, and the strike zone is actually more accurately called than it ever has been before. But in a sense, that sort of backfired because the zone is kind of big. It's been getting bigger and bigger, particularly at the low end. So you see far many more low strikes now, strikes at the knees or just below the knees. And hitters can't really hit those pitches, at least not for power, but they know that they're going to get those strikes called on them now, and so they have to kind of swing at those pitches anyway or protect those pitches. And so you're seeing more called strikes down there. You're seeing hitters swing at pitches that they can't really hit as forcefully, and there's just a larger area that the hitter has to protect now. He has to worry about up. He has to worry about down, out, and in. It's just a larger area, and and that probably accounts for a third to a half of the decline over the last several years, which is enormous. All right. So, and we'll talk about some of the other things that account for other parts of that decline. But I think we have to acknowledge the procrustean nature of this problem. So that I mean, okay. So uh, it turns out the more accurate they are about the strike zone, uh, the more it seems to benefit the pitchers. So the natural counter to that would be to change the strike zone. The difficulty there is what you probably don't want are a lot of high counts and a lot of walks. And presumably, if you change the strike zone, you'll have more balls. And it seems as though chances are you'd have higher higher counts in general and more walks, and that's just another kind of boring, right? That's possible. There actually are more pitches thrown now than there used to be. Strikeouts take a number of pitches. You know, you, it takes at least three to strike out, and generally more than that, because uh, guys will foul pitches off or they'll take pitches. And there is more of an emphasis on being selective at the plate and MLB has sort of selected a new generation of hitters that is more like kind of the the money ball model of 10 or 15 years ago where guys will take pitches and work walks and there's no stigma about striking out really anymore because everyone does it and in fact it's not really a bad thing you know strikeouts in general are are not all that counterproductive for hitters because 
you know, it's better than putting a ball in play and getting a ground ball double play, uh, which is one alternative. And strikeouts often go hand-in-hand with power hitters, but there's been such a a league-wide increase in strikeout rate coupled with the way that teams are playing defense now where they're positioning their fielders where they think the fielder will hit the ball, not just in the traditional place where fielders are supposed to stand. And so now even putting the ball in play leads to, you know, less good outcomes because you're you're less likely to get that single that goes through the infield than you are to just hit the ball to the third baseman or shortstop who's playing on the right side of second base now. So it's really a, a confluence of factors that have kind of come together to favor pitchers more than hitters. One of the problems with the modern era for me is that, you know, for uh, people like me who are, metaphorically speaking anyway, the guy on the bar stool or the seat in the coffee shop with an opinion is that it turns out everything has now been quantified and studied, everything that I might possibly have an opinion about based on my own lame perceptions of what I'm seeing uh, is either true or not true pretty empirically. Somebody studied it. Uh, And so one of my, I mean, you were just talking about this, but one of my just, you know, totally anecdotal, unprovable assertions, but it's probably either provable or dis, uh, disprovable, is that because the pitchers throw the ball so much harder now, the ball comes up there much faster, and we can talk in, at some, in some detail about that, that one of the things that they do is just foul off as many of them as they possibly can so they can try to begin to time it, try to begin to see it, try to maybe look for a pitch that isn't 98 miles an hour, um, and, and that that kind of leads to a certain artistry on the part of the batter of just wearing the pitcher down, fouling off as many as they can. It's not new. Even prior to my time as a, a baseball fan, Luke Appling was like the most famous guy, I think, for you know these incredible displays of fouling off balls. But it seems right. to me, somebody's counted this, I'm sure, Ben, that it's happening even more now. Well, I think there are certain guys who have that ability. Appling is famous for it. Ichiro is famous for it mm. and actually could do it. From what I've seen, it's a rare thing for hitters to be able to do. Uh, that you know, if you look at the rate of foul balls on swings, and you look at you compare, say, no strikes to one strike to two strikes, you would think that there would be a big increase with two strikes. That once the hitter got to two strikes, there'd be many more foul balls, and he'd just kind of be you know protecting the plate and shortening his swing, that sort of thing. League-wide, at least, there isn't really any evidence that that's the case. So there are guys like Ichiro who seem to have the bat control or the you know the mindset to do that. But I think on the whole, you're seeing hitters not really shorten up their swings all that much with two strikes. You know, it's there's no stigma surrounding strikeouts anymore. There's not a whole lot of power, so power is sort of valued, and so guys will swing away on two strikes as if it were zero or one strike. So I don't know that there's a, a whole lot of adaptation on the part of the pitchers as far as adjusting to the count and, uh, you know, trying to foul off pitches until they get one they can hit. You might want to ask uh, Mike Napoli about whether there's no stigma against strikeouts. But anyway, um, just just, to per- just kind of a regional observation. Well, I mean, can yes. we just talk about Napoli, how... F- if I could interrupt, Napoli actually is, is one of the guys who the studies have shown has been impacted the most by the new strike zone because, you know, he was a guy who a lot of his value came from his ability to tell where the boundaries of the strike zone was and to work walks and to not swing at pitches that weren't going to be called strikes. And the last few years have kind of turned his world upside down, right? Because now the pitches that he used to take that were balls are strikes suddenly. And so he's one of the guys who, if you look at 
the pitches that have been called strikes that, you know, several years ago probably would have been called balls. He's one of the guys who shows up as being hurt the most by this new strike zone. So a guy like that, who a lot of his value comes from his ability to distinguish between balls and strikes, now that it's just everything's a strike, it tracks a lot of his value. All right. Well, the things that hurt Mike uh, Napoli then go on to hurt many other people, and I am one of those people. So um, anyway, um, can we just talk about how fast these – I mean, I I feel as though I grew up in in an era, maybe the measurement uh, of speed was a little bit different, a little bit less precise, but it seemed to me as though I grew up in an era where somebody who had a fastball over 90 miles an hour was really fast. That was considered somebody really threw gas. And now it's almost a prerequisite for pitching in the major leagues. Yeah, you know, and I think some of the difference might be due to changes in radar guns or, you know, changes in the the distance at which the pitch is measured. Because, you know, if you you put a radar gun on a pitch that's right at home plate, it will seem to have been slower than if you train it right on where the pitcher releases the ball, that sort of thing. But it definitely does seem like over the last decade or so for which we have reliable velocity data, there has been an increase of a couple miles per hour uh, league-wide, which is a lot. Because if you look at what happens to pitchers when they gain a couple miles per hour or lose a couple miles per hour, it's really significant. You know, those extra milliseconds that a faster pitch shaves off the batter's reaction time really matter. And partially that's a result of the increasing specialization among pitchers that, you know, there are so many relievers in the bullpen now that, each guy will come in for an inning at a time or not even an inning at a time. And so there's no need to conserve anything or hold anything back. It's just throwing at maximum speed right from the start. And so there are more guys doing that. So that's part of it. But even starters, you know, they seem to be throwing harder also. And, you know, it, it could be just better training techniques, better mechanics, you know, better scouting to find guys who will throw hard, that sort of thing. So, Again, probably a bunch of factors coming together. And I guess if you're a, a hitter, the saving grace is that the, the harder a pitcher throws, the more likely he is to get hurt. Uh, and so we've also seen a number of injuries that maybe we wouldn't have seen in the past. But it's definitely true, you know, that perception uh, that 90 used to be special and now it's not, that is absolutely the case. And uh, obviously 100 used to be even more special. The old, When I was growing up, the only person that was ever talked about uh, in connection with was a guy named Steve Delkowski, who could supposedly right. throw over 100 miles an hour, but he had no idea on any given occasion where that ball was going, which tended to militate mm-hmm. against his greatness. Now we have at least one pitcher who, uh, I believe from reading your stuff, he's averaging over 100 miles an hour? Yeah, Roldis Chapman, uh, the Reds closer, has has hit you know 103, 104. He's regularly averaged over 100 for a while now. Uh, and there's even a, a reliever on the Marlins this year called Carter Capps. Yes, I want to and, talk about uh, this. Yeah, so he not only does he throw 97 or 98 as measured by a, a radar gun, but he has developed this sort of hop in his delivery where he, he literally jumps, he leaves the ground after he pushes off the rubber and he lands right at the very bottom of the pitcher's mound. So he's getting a few extra feet from this hop, which there was some controversy over, you know, whether it was actually allowed. MLB said it was, it was legal, and so he is allowed to do this. He sort of hops forward, propels himself off the ground, and if you look at this this new stat that is available called perceived velocity, uh, which is measured by StatCast, the new MLB system that is installed in every park this year, 
that tells you how far in front of the mound the pitcher releases the ball, and he releases the ball so far in front of the mound that his pitches, even though they might say 97 or 98, actually appear to be you know 101, 102, just because the batter has less time to react than they would with someone throwing the same speed who's releasing the ball farther away from the plate. So in a sense, he is the hardest thrower in baseball. But yes, there is you know there there are lots of relievers this year who you know you might not even have heard of. These aren't necessarily stars, but they're guys who can come in and throw 99, 100. Um, yeah, so you have the, the perceived velocity the velocity thing I thought was really interesting. It's kind of like the, the heat index. You know, they say it's 91. It's, it feels like 97 or something. So, exactly. so if, you, if, if you and I are both throwing 90 miles an hour, but I, you have to throw 66 feet and I have to throw 61 feet, my pitch right. is going to be a lot faster than yours, at least in the eyes of the batter upon whom it is bearing down. I just want to say, and this is totally kind of at that Des Bryant quality of, like, I don't know what the rules are, but I know what that looks like. You know, <laughs> um, like, watching the first time I read your article and then I watched the clips of this guy it looks totally illegal it, he he jumps off the rubber and lands with his arm kind of still kind of behind the rest of his body and then he yeah. throws how can that be why wouldn't everybody do that yeah it works almost too well if if everyone could do it and there is another reliever Jordan Walden with the cardinal shoot does it to a slightly lesser extent if everyone could do that and that became the norm I think it probably would be in MLB's best interest to declare it illegal because it works too well. Uh, you know, Carter Caps I think, has about a, a 50% whiff rate this year, which means that half of the swings that batters take against him are whiffs. They miss. Uh, so if everyone could do that, that would be very, very bad for batters. I think, you know, it, it's hard enough to control your pitches when you have a traditional delivery. When you are flying, essentially, on your way to the plate, you would think it would be even more difficult to control where your pitchers pitches go. Caps seems to be able to do it. He can hop and he can also put the pitches where he wants it. I would guess that that ability is rare, or at least baseball should probably hope it's rare. Well, yes, Ben. I feel as though not only should he be called for an illegal pitch, he should be called for traveling. You know, <laughs> he's breaking rules in two different sports when he does this, and I have a problem with that. Let me just very quickly. I mean, you know, to the once again to the untutored listener, maybe the, the, the question comes up: Well, if people, the last time people were doing something a lot, lot better than they used to be able to do it in baseball, if you don't follow it closely, was the era of the home run ball, and it turned out there were steroids behind that. How how likely is it that that's any part of this story of these pitchers with this incredible gas? I think it's probably, you know, I think it's really hard to pin down the effects of steroids. We know that there are a few players who really seem to benefit from it, who had very atypical aging patterns that it's hard to believe they would have had if not for the things that they were taking or reportedly taking. But on the whole... There are many, many examples of players who took things and did not go on to become superstars or did not go on to be better than they had been before. And, you know, and it's hard to say if it's a zero-sum game. I mean, pitchers were taking these things too. Uh, hitters were taking them also. It's hard to say which one it benefits more. So, you know, it's really hard to say without knowing who was taking what and when, when they were taking it what the actual effects were, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that there were some effects uh, and that maybe the decline in offense over the last several years has something to do with that, assuming that the game is actually cleaned up now relative to where it was before. 
but I think we can explain so much of it based on other factors like the strike zone, like pitchers throwing harder, uh, which doesn't seem to be related to their own performance-enhancing drug use, uh, and advanced scouting and the defensive shift and all of these factors that are kind of conspiring against hitters. I would put steroids somewhere fairly low on that list, but I couldn't completely disprove someone who would put it much higher. You know, Ben, we've only got a, a minute left or a minute or so left. We're talking about Ben, talking to Ben Lindbergh from uh, Grantland, where he's a staff writer. Um, you know, I, I, one of the people inducted over the weekend was Pedro Martinez, kind of, you know, that classic pitcher who outthinks his, the batter frequently rather than overpowers him. I grew up as a fan of, of Louis Tion, who was this kind of amazingly crazy pitcher. Uh, Thurman Munson once said, Tion just added a new pitch. That means he's got 50. Um, you know, and is that, am I an old fart, a crabby old fart, or is, we could do a whole show that was just a series of your answers to that question, but am I a crabby old fart, or is that kind of pitcher less? likely to emerge in this hyped-up, gas-oriented pitching environment? I think there is a class of pitchers now that doesn't need that nuance, right, because they're coming in for an inning at a time, and they only need one pitch or two pitches. You know, there are successful relievers who just throw fastballs 80% of the time, and and they do just fine. Uh, But I think there is still a lot of craft uh, among starting pitchers, certainly. And, you know, I, I think one of the things we tend to think about guys like Pedro or guys like uh, Greg Maddox. It's often said that he was just all finesse and control. Greg Maddox threw very hard. You know, he threw in the mid nineties when he was younger. And and we tend to remember these guys at the tail end of their career when they're kind of getting by on guts and guile, but Pedro threw very hard. You know, Pedro had overpowering stuff. He also had a lot of smarts and attitude and, and secondary pitches and everything. He was the complete package. But he did throw very hard. You know, he wasn't just getting by on, on, on his wits. So I think that's something we have to keep in mind about these guys that, you know, maybe we forget what they looked like in their, their youth or their prime. Yeah, I should have used Bruce Hurst as my example. Jim Rice once said to Bruce Hurst, could you tell me how you got hurt throwing an 86-mile-an-hour fastball? Anyway, uh, Ben Lindbergh, we have to go. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. I'm sure we'll speak again. Staff writer at Grantland and a specialist in this foggy issue of why pitchers are rising. I don't care if we never get back So one of the things we've tried to do on this show is be a dispenser of information and wisdom about backyard chickens, about the sort of whole business of keeping chickens, generally speaking. We did an entire show on chickens and on keeping chickens. We had a chicken here in the studio. I did not... (laughs) I did was not. He a good guess. Yes, no. Though we're talking to Beth Titel right now. She's a uh, feature writer for the Boston Globe, uh, who has basically who has recently uh, been one of the journalists to pounce on a story about why you shouldn't kiss your chickens. The chicken we had in the studio was a very good guest. I did not kiss that chicken. I did not attempt to kiss that chicken because you know why? Because why? No, because no means no, and also <laughs> that also means no. So, um, but there's a there, you wouldn't think Beth that there would be any kind of national near emergency arising from the propensity of people to kiss their chickens. But there apparently is. I'll let you pick up the story. The CDC is involved, right? Yes, that's what I love to write, that it was a national emergency. Who knew that they were so irresistible? Well, they are soft and they are cute. So we'll come back to that. So why shouldn't people kiss their chickens? Well, the problem is that you can get salmonella from kissing a chicken. Yeah. Because... Their birds, their feces can carry it and other places. So you have to be really careful. You have to, people obviously are going to be touching your chickens if they're keeping them in their house, but they have to 
really wash their hands. That's one thing that the CDC emphasized. See, it would seem to me that if the salmonella were located anywhere, and I realize you're not a, an epidemiologist, um, that, you know, that the salmonella would, in fact, be located in the chicken's feces. So that kissing the chicken, just, you know, mouth-to-beak contact would be a relatively <laughs> safe thing. You know what? I can see why you would think that somebody would kiss the chicken on the beak. Yeah. I think from the people I interviewed, most of the smooching seemed to actually be on top of the chicken's head. Um, I think what the, the CDC was trying to get at was just, or who knows, though, actually, maybe people were not limiting it to just the top of the head. Maybe it was that mouth-to-beak. Um, people were just saying too close of a contact with the chicken. So maybe when you're kissing it on its feet, you're also kind of touching it. Whole, maybe it's dirty. It's got, you know, there's some feces. These guys are, you know, birds who are walking around the barnyard, and that can be kind of, you know, dirty. After they, they're excrement. So I think the whole thing is just getting too close because they said problems also come when people take a chicken into their house. Right. And so it's you, 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 chicken shouldn't be in the house. And then it's really don't nuzzle the chicken. Um, nuzzle. That's yes. probably even the word maybe the CDC. Maybe who knows? I never thought of the CDC as an agency that was trying to get publicity. Right. But maybe by using the word kiss, that was their their goal. Or, or they may have thought the word, word nuzzle was too obscure. And really, it's beyond that. Don't pet your chicken while you're eating popcorn. You bring the chicken in. You put it on the couch. You're watching a movie together. Maybe you're watching Chicken Run. You're petting the chicken. You're eating the popcorn. Pretty soon, you're basically eating chicken feces, right? No, that's true. Plus, the other issues, I don't know if you've ever watched a movie with a chicken. We have. And um, they're terrible because they talk the whole time. If they've seen it before, they spoil it. They're terrible, terrible companions. For TV shows, um, right, and also with the popcorn, they have a lot of. They're like, oh, I don't want the butter. So, for many reasons, you shouldn't be watching a movie with your chicken. But the big one, the CDC is concerned with, has to be with health, as you said. So you're saying that they actually go, bruk, bruk, bruk. Bruce, Bruce Willis is really dead. Bruk, 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 bruk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, chicken spoilers, uh, a bad thing. So yeah. when you say we've watched a movie with chicken, do you actually own chickens? No, I, I said that as a joke. I, have, right. I, I do not actually own chickens. Um, I was surprised, The thing that surprised me was that I knew that people did own chickens, but I didn't realize that people were getting that cozy with the chickens that they owned. I mean, people, the people who have chickens, the ones I interviewed, said they got them because they, a lot of times they wanted the fresh eggs. That was actually what seemed to motivate a lot of people. Yeah. So it was that they, they got them for the eggs, and then I think they actually found that they started to enjoy the chicken, chicken's company. And other people said they really enjoyed watching the chickens peck and scratch around the backyard. I talked to one woman who said she's a very busy career person, and she was surprised to find that she found watching chickens relaxing. So, yes, and, and that's fine. But, I mean, the problem is that the baby boom generation and Gen X and Gen Y and the millennials, they're all one big, huge clump who don't understand what things are. So for centuries, people have understood that a chicken is essentially <laughs> it's a soulless egg machine right it's not yeah. a it doesn't it doesn't have a personality it doesn't really need your emotional succor it doesn't need anything like that and you shouldn't need anything from a chicken you shouldn't be so desperate and emotionally needy <laughs> that you have to interact emotionally with a chicken but instead we have this huge cohort starting with people born in like 1948 or something and going forward who they get backyard chickens and before you know it you know the the chicken is like sleeping in bed with them right well, the thing I love about what you just said is, I, I look, let's look at there's two parts to it. Part number one is that the chickens don't have personalities. People actually told me that their chickens did have different personalities in the way that a cat or a dog would. So I think there we could say, if you actually got to let, let yourself get to know a chicken, you might hopefully safely eat those words. 
But the other part of what you said is so fascinating because, right, how emotionally needy are you that you actually need something from a chicken? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what does that say if your chicken is your soulmate? Right. And so uh, the um, reductio ad absurdum that you found, Beth uh, Titel, is that, um, well, you found somebody who actually put a diaper on its chick- on the chicken so the chicken could be in the house? Oh, yeah. I actually, I interviewed a guy who said that, there, he said to me, there's crazy, this is actually a funny guy. He had a lot of chickens, but he looks at them as, he wanted to emphasize to me that he looks at them as livestock and not pets. He said, I'm not one of those people who puts diapers on my chickens. And I thought he was making that up. But in fact, it went to Amazon. And there are they, many different companies actually sell chicken diapers. But then he said, you should talk to my hygienist. She is one of those people. So I thought, fantastic. I'd talk to the hygienist. So I said, he didn't know her name, but he obviously knew the name of the dental practice he goes to. So he gave me that. I called. I said, listen, I'm sorry. This sounds crazy, but I'm a reporter with the Boston Globe. I've heard there's a hygienist who likes chickens. And the woman says, oh, you mean Amy? Yeah, definitely. And when the story ran, before it ran in the paper, one of the editors said, I didn't put in that the hygienist made sure to wash her hands. I thought that was assumed. He, he wanted to put that in because he was afraid that people, the boss might read it and she could get fired. I mean, you don't really want to think of your hygienist not washing her hands. Yeah, I mean, I don't, Beth, I don't think of myself as a really picky person. Yeah, yeah, no, me but, neither. But if I were going to the dentist and I knew from reading one of your articles that the hygienist cleaning my teeth right now had this yeah. whole relationship with the chicken and the diapers and the, you know, and they're taking the diapers off. And I, I would really want to know about the hand washing, you no, know. I know. That's actually almost a profession that's the, that you would least want to, to be a chicken lover, would be your hygienist. So the more people I interviewed, I, somebody, I had so many crazy things after a while I couldn't even put them in. I mean, I just ran out of space. People knitting sweaters for chickens, they have special, specially made tables. They're not picnic tables. They call them chicknick tables. So it's a table that's the tiny little benches or a little roost for the bird to stand on and a small table. So if you're having enjoying a picnic outside on July 4th, which is we know chickens like to celebrate that holiday, um, the chickens are right next to you eating their feed from their little table while you're having whatever you're having at your table. Okay. Now, I like chickens, actually. I think they're great. I was briefly even involved in, with a religion where chickens are sacred. But, you know, really, if you have a special picnic table for your chicken so that the chicken can celebrate the 4th of July barbecue with you, there's really there's some gaping psychic deficit elsewhere in your life that you're dealing with. I mean, that's just that's too much. Well, you know, is it part of this also? Aren't there like celebrities like Jen, everything is usually the fault of celebrities? Aren't there? Well, cele- that's so true. Yeah. Exactly. You know, surprisingly, I could not find a Gwyneth Paltrow link, but she might well have chickens. But People Magazine actually just in June ran a big feature, Jennifer Aniston and her fiance and their flock. And in fact, somebody even gave them two birds named Jen- Jennifer and whatever the fiance's name is. And there's. Who else has chickens? Let's see. Julia Roberts, Kate Hudson, Martha Stewart. I'm not even sure if she's a celebrity anymore. So many celebrities that I was – the birds are now spending time with so many A-listers that I was thinking that the birds are going to start demanding cosmetic surgery. Right. You know, and it's like, look at my beak. I never felt bad about it before. It's pointy. You know, my feet are too yellow. Oh, we can do something about that. Yeah, exactly. I am I am of an age – I'm old enough to remember when the only chicken celebrity was Foghorn Leghorn. Uh, <laughs> I was actually trying to, you know, I, I was actually trying to think because now, like everybody, it's a, you know, in newspapers, you want people to click on your stories. So I was thinking, is there some celebrity chicken I could put in the headline to, you know, to try to, to get a little more attention? To this? But wasn't he a rooster? He was he a, a rooster, rooster, but a rooster's a chicken. A rooster's I know, a chicken. But people are not allowed to keep, at least in Boston, you can't keep roosters. I think it's just too noisy. They're very particular. But yeah, Foghorn Leghorn, you're right. He's, 
Actually, I think we're ripe for a new celebrity chicken. I mean, well, there's an opening. Yeah, that. there's definitely an opening. Frank Perdue is long gone. So, and, and it <laughs> seems to me also that if the CDC really wants to get into, on top of this, if we really have a problem with people contracting salmonella, and what are we talking about, like 180 cases, something like yeah, that? Yeah, you're right. right. It's 181 cases in four, in four different outbreaks. And I, mean, I think in about 40 states across the country, and 35 people end up going to the hospital. And, uh, yeah, you're right. So were we saying the CDC needs to do what? Well, I mean, maybe they need a celebrity public service announcement. I mean, maybe one is some. Oh, yeah, right, right. You know, I mean, it could be Foghorn Leghorn. You could go, I, I say, I say, I say I like to kiss a chicken, but I say I don't you kiss a chicken. Or it could be like an actual person who keeps a chicken. It could yeah. be Jennifer Aniston. That she... I was thinking that. What yeah. about a gaggle of celebrities? celebrities? Like, it could be kind of like the Ellen Selfie from from the Oscars, but with all the celebrities <laughs> gathered, and there's a movie selfie, and they're saying, don't kiss, we love our chickens, but don't kiss them. Right, a, you know? a group of celebrities gathered together, not yeah, having... A flock of celebrities. A flock of celebrities, not having urgent diarrhea. And they could be saying... <laughs> right, able to complete the entire PSA. Right. Not having to interrupt it for a bathroom break. Maybe even a We Are the World type song based on that. <laughs> we don't. We are the world, but we don't kiss the world. Yeah, that's right. We don't kiss chickens. We don't have <laughs> diarrhea. Uh, run with it. Run with it is what I say. Well, I, I would, I would say that we've exhausted the subject, except that I don't think we probably have. Based on your Beth Tidell's your your excellent reporting, your detailed reporting, I feel as though there are entire stones of chicken affection of public. Oh, dis- yes. Yeah, that we, I assume that I'll be on every day, one day, every day this week. Right? We, we could, I could see making this a regular feature. Absolutely. Half an hour segment. All right. So, but the bottom line is if you're out there, if you've got backyard chickens, you like the chickens, they're soft, they're alluring. You like to pet them. You got to wash your hands after you pet them and you can't kiss them at all. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I think that's yes. a very simple instruction. I don't. Uh, can, why can't Americans follow something that basic? Beth Tidell from the Boston Globe. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Club, 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 club. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. So calm yourself and stop that fuss. There ain't nobody here but us. We chickens trying to sleep. Then you bust in and hobble, 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 hobble with your chin. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. You're stomping around and shaking the ground.